0: Welcome back to another impactful night of the Impact of Education Leadership. This is episode 121. I'm your host, I agree, for I just run the third. Thanks for are buddy, Thornton, the Positive change Changes Pro, and Nina Taylor, the loving Miss Nina Taylor. Please say hello to the people. Hello, everyone.
1: Good evening.
0: That's right. That was the buddy, Thornton, the Positive Changes Pro. This is tonight's topic is, I'm going to tell you, tonight's going to be a matter of forecasting. I kind of feel like using the word projection as well. Um, but before we start this off, uh, I was I, I was asked a question, and buddy was asked a question. How are you doing? And that that phrase is so popularized. But do we really want to know how we're doing? And that's why we're using the topic tonight: racial gaps in education. In 2015, 30 percent public students attended public schools in which the combined enrollment of minority students was at least 75% of total enrollment. Over half of Hispanics, 60%, Blacks, 58%, and Pacific Islander students, 53%, attended such schools. In contrast, less than half of Asian students, 38%, American Indian forest last Alaska native students 37% students of two or more races 19% and white students 5% attended such schools a learning goal is the big picture here And so what is a learning goal well it's when you focus a, a classroom setting or a unit within a class and areas of academic engagement, performance outcomes, effective practices, effective settings. And this is a challenge in our black and brown communities. Many educators discuss new strategies for incorporating a more culturally sensitive curriculum, which is the big picture moving forward connecting such goals to the standards will ensure that the goals are age appropriate and aligned with campus and district goals and visions and those goals are learning goals or the learning goals learning goals help evolve our students with time to complete those learning objectives specific to those learning outcomes or the specific skills or knowledge that the student is expected to master in a lesson. Nice. We are going to have a very sensitive discussion that is racial gaps in education moving forward tonight. I want to pull first from Buddy Thornton, positive social change agent pro, uh, with this type of topic. I mean. Being a you know a white uh, middle-aged man to tackle a discussion like this, uh, you know, sir, I, I really you know have to give you your props on that uh, to to step up to the challenge. Uh, please let us know you know what uh, what kind of encouraged you to even uh, accept this challenge, and what are you doing, Kevin, sir? That's my question. First question tonight.
1: Well, I appreciate the prompt, Isaiah. Right now, I'm uh, currently working on books three and four of my Slippery Slope series, and they are focusing on parents and students, uh, teachers and their caregivers, and the dynamic of how the learning environment and the growth environment, the development environment affects children in all demographics. But it focuses on uh communication barriers and the gaps Uh, and of course the racial gap is one of those gaps that's in those books so it it aligns up with the research that i'm doing but more than that it's more than time in the historical reality of our country that we attack this dynamic race and racial problems has been in the focal point since the 60s and the racial uh, unrest that was there and all of the civil rights things that were uh, put into play and yet here we are 60 years later and we're still having discussions and debates and there's been very little on the ground movement that has made the world a better place and it's high time that people on and from every demographic, white, black, brown, Pacific Rim, it doesn't matter. We need to join the conversation. And that encouraged me to step up to the plate and say, you betcha, I want to get into this conversation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We thank you for that. You know, I was you know, we were doing some research at, at that time. Of the year, uh, where you know we want to see, like you know, where is this podcast going, and you know, and what demographics uh, is it reaching? And so we got back our our, our report, and we are in uh, about forty-eight countries, and we're in uh, about uh, I want to say about forty-four states in the United States, and about one hundred eighty-three um, uh, cities in the United States. You know, uh, you know, people are listening to this podcast in, in Brazil. United Kingdom, Bangladesh, Australia, Nigeria, Logos, you know, not like Nigeria, uh different parts of the country of Canada, even Ireland and, and Switzerland and, and Turkey, Belgium. And you know, not just to give a shout out to them and, and, and uh you know, thank them, but we do thank them for, for tuning in and listening in and sharing uh, you know, the podcast uh with, with different people. And, you know, tonight we're talking about uh you know those 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 gaps in education as it pertains to uh minorities uh mainly for the most part right and so you know a, a lot of people feel uh different ways about this but from you i want to get a, a parental uh perspective uh, you know as, as a parent as a, as a grandparent as a great grandparent um as it relates to parental involvement right uh and i believe these are are often the pacific standards uh with these standardized tests that are you know bought and sold uh, to different districts right because they have been you know doing this so long and this system seems to work well uh for them when it relates uh, as it relates to um you know learning goals and setting those type of objectives right So, you know as as a parent as as a grandparent as a great grandparent uh, how do you feel about you know everyone getting a a fair shake across the board and and with that being said why aren't more minorities being advocated by major educational and governmental institutions uh, moving forward in the future especially with uh, you know we got virtual learning now. And really, there, there's really, you uh, got so much diversity now, and, and especially in the United States and other countries. You know, Why aren't more minorities being advocated by these major uh, institutions uh, and these um, you know, these educational uh, platforms in, in academia? That would be my question. I know it's a loaded question, but I know you can handle it. But well, that's my first question for you, sir.
1: Well, let's start with one word, and that is starting line. There's no way, uh, given the historical perspective of the last 400 years, but even if you took, take the microscopic look of the last 50 years or the last 20 years or the last 10 years, that you can equate the starting line that the predominant white majority has enjoyed, has been entitled to and compare it to the disadvantaged starting line that all of the minority groups be it the hispanics be it the blacks be it the incoming broad based group of pacific island or pacific rim students yes of course there are some outlier there are some advantage some well uh refined students as every group you're going to have your your uh, what we like to call your your superstars it doesn't matter you're going to have those in every group but you cannot equate starting line that the broad majority of the white majority has enjoyed and has been entitled to and compare it to the starting line that all other groups have had to endure and then say okay we're gonna just balance out the books and let's just make sure everybody gets a fair shake at positions in all these different institutions, positions in all of these educational institutions, the governmental institutions. Uh, The reason is because with a disadvantaged starting line, even with superstar status, you're gonna have a disproportionate number of people reach the finish line. You can't have a very small percentage of people say, in the middle class, and there is a very, very strong black middle class. There is a a predominantly uh, growing upper black middle, upper class. There there are people from every demographic in every affluent group and every disadvantaged group. There are disadvantaged whites as well as blacks. But the ideology behind the starting line and finishing line is when you take the broad-based macro look All minority groups are gonna always be disproportionately given positions because of that disadvantaged starting line that they have endured for decades. And we have to understand that when you look at standardized tests, those standardized tests have been set up by an institution that bounces to the middle. Just like IQ tests bounce to the number 100. 100 looks at the entire population, but when the entire population only includes 15% black and a total of 39% minorities, you're only gonna have a certain number of people in those minority groups who are gonna be above or below that middle line. So you're going to have to fight for every rung on that pecking order ladder to get those positions. So more minorities being advocated by major educational and government institutions is gonna depend on some way for us to offset that starting line. We have to understand, we either need to have a stronger mentoring program, we have to have a way to build hope into the disadvantaged populations or the disadvantaged school systems that are are always enduring less resources. I mean, lack of resources creates a huge problem, and it gets offset all the time by parents who work diligently to tell their children, "I don't care where we're where we are. We're going to do whatever it takes to move you at least one or two rungs up the ladder, so that when you are in our position, your children are higher up than we were, and you are going to continue to climb that ladder." for them it's a multi-generational race for the majority it's a one generation or same generation race so you can't even compare the two and when you have that conversation that gap cannot continue to expand right now it's expanding we need to find a way to reverse that trend and the only way we can reverse that trend is to get people to hinge on parental involvement And understand that we need to shrink it from being a multi-generational chase to earn one or two rungs up that ladder to be able to leap up the ladder. Until we can do that, until we can balance the scales and make the starting line even, this is a problem that we're going to have to continue to address.
0: You know, I like that. I like that response. And and when you were talking and I'm glad I asked you that question the way I did, it was loaded. But as you were talking, it made me just remember why I had to let you talk before I interrupted and said, you know, that motivation that we're talking about with parental involvement. I mean, you see it through churches because they are community centered. Right. And, and churches give people a, a career. They give people a, a job, you know, even if it's volunteer. But whenever you get those parents interacting in those different, you know, church settings or things like that, you know, for most, most of the cases, you know, they have to bring their children along because it's like, Hey, you know, I'm working after hours here and it becomes community. You know, they're eating at these churches or these religious. Um, uh, institutions, however you want to call it, however you want to name it. And, and that's that motivation because it's like, Hey, you know, while you're here, you have nothing to do. You can do something here at this church event, uh, or you can do your homework. And so, you know, what I mean by these educational, these major, you know, educational institutions, the governmental institutions, you know, I, I'm talking about, you know, job fairs. I'm talking, I'm talking about jobs. I'm talking about, and you saw a lot of this during COVID nineteen, right? You saw, you know, underserved communities being equipped with, you know, one to one devices, hotspots, right? And, you know, it gave them a different motivation for learning, until and, and so they kind of figured out, like, hey, I can use this for, you know, video games or, or something like that. But for the most part, you know, I, you know, you could really, really see. Uh, a lot of improvement at the beginning of that. So, you know, when when I ask you that question, uh, you know, we have to have, like you said, those advocators that are in leadership position, going in and setting up mentorship, you know, camps, mentorship after school programs, and, and get and getting the parents involved and, and and opening up opportunities for parents to make money, and and that kind of forces them. I believe to get involved because let's face it, money is is a is a huge motivational factor. But, you know, thank you for the response. I wanna go to uh, the lovely Miss Nina Taylor. Love Miss Nina Taylor, how you doing and welcome back to Impact Educational Leadership. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing currently.
2: Oh, well, thank you so much for the invitation back and I'm glad to be back. Um, uh, I'm still doing my shows. They've expanded on into the country of Australia. And as of last Monday, we're on in Nassau, Bahamas, and Barbados. So just continuing to make our way around the world with my show, The Gospel Express. Uh, My news segment, which is still going strong, over 2,000 stations around the world now. Uh, Like I said, we lost count well after 2,000, so I don't even know how many it is. So I'm very excited about that. Um got my master's in uh, 2020 in uh, entertainment business. I'm very excited about that and just um, looking forward to continuing on with the shows and to expanding into some other bigger and better things.
0: Uh, for those who don't know, I Love, Miss Nintendo Taylor is a award uh house show host uh <laughs> congratulations congratulations because you made some of the awards that you. you have received here recently we want to we want to congratulate you and, and just honor you uh
2: just in the last well in october i was in new haven connecticut for the hollaback gospel music awards and i was awarded with um a lovely very lovely probably the Best looking award I've ever gotten for um, media excellence, and I was very, very excited and surprised about that. And then uh, two weeks later, I was in Atlanta for the Spin Awards, which is the Spin Awards is an international um, announcers award show where they honor people from around the world. There was announcers from all over the world there um, being represented, and I won. Um, uh, best show of the year with my show, The Gospel Express, and host personality announcer of the year as well. So very, very surprised at <laughs> those. So I won both of those. I was in uh, nominated for five and won two out of five.
0: Listen, listen, listen. You know, (laughs) congratulations again. I'm so proud of you. And I'm so glad that you, you you know, you made the time to come back onto the podcast. You know, you heard me talking about those percentages um, in the Uh beginning of the opening remarks, right? And then, uh, you know, Buddy Buddy Thornton, who who is a, a, a mediator of Sought After, his response was, you know, we have to start at the starting point. Right. And when he said that, the first thing that came to my mind was, yeah, we have to start the starting point, but I believe we have to reevaluate the starting point. We have to reanalyze the starting point because we have to use new ways of critiquing, new ways of evaluating. Right. I believe COVID 19 is forcing that upon us that we have to Excellent. we have to re look at the picture. The picture has changed. It's a different portrait. It's a different illustration. It's a different image. Right? Mm-hmm. And so we have to be defenders while we're being supporters. Right? So that we can, you know, serve not just the underserved communities, but you know all communities what emotional intelligence with cultural awareness. I I need to be aware just because you're Hispanic doesn't mean you're from Mexico. You could be from Honduras. You could be from Brazil. You could be from uh, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Puerto Rico, right? And so we need to be because now we have pivoted to a, a globalization age where, you know, you're not, you know, shoulder to shoulder with, you know, some somebody that you grew up from, uh, you know, and, and, you know, your grandparents, your great grandparents, even your parents, you know, generation. Now, you are walking shoulder to shoulder. You're sharing a classroom with some kid that's from, you know, Nigeria. Uh, some kid that's from Honduras or Mm -hmm. even Russia or you name it, Bangladesh, you name it. And so, I know you are a, an, an HBC graduate, a HBCU graduate, HBCU mm-hmm. graduate, and so, and studies have shown that minority students attending HBCUs have increased levels of engagement, and I don't believe you can be engaged if you're not aware, right? right. And so, and, and more interactions uh, with faculty members meaning that you know faculty members are you know interacting with them you know away from the clock and even greater involvement with uh faculty research projects not only are they you know maybe in a frat or you know in a society with these faculty members but they're also doing projects they're researching with them right how should HBCUs get more involved with topics like this, with situations like this, with challenges like this? And and as it relates to public education and those public educational uh, schools, you know, what are your thoughts? That's, that's my first question for you.
2: You know, sadly, I remember, and nobody told us this. I also teach uh, kindergarten. Um, a lot of times we are the first teachers that children see because a lot of them are not attending, you know, the pre-K programs or the, the daycare programs that actually teach. Um, sadly, uh, the statistics in, at least in this state, is that 75% of the children who were, uh, you know, continuing on with their education virtually last year were failing 75%, that's, that's of our entire district. And that's very, very sad. It's sad, but what HBCUs can do is to lead by example. Uh, most of us, uh, like I said, I attended an inner city high school. I didn't know how I was gonna go to school. I didn't know what school I was gonna go to, I knew nothing. One day, Dr. Arthur Thomas showed up at our school He was the vice president in charge of academic affairs and he was doing recruiting for that particular school. Had it not been for him, for him coming and actually speaking to us and us seeing him seeing, you know, this, this intelligent, uh, band, you know, a lot of us had never been around anybody who spoke like him, who dressed like him, who, you know, he was, he was a big deal to us. It was like, wow. You know, who is this guy? And because of the way that he spoke to us, you know, in a way that we can understand and telling us that, you know, if this is what you want, you know, it can actually happen. Had he not shown up at our school, I probably would not have even, I wouldn't have even known about the school. I wouldn't have known that there was an HBCU, well, a couple here in Ohio. I had no idea. You know, I was planning to head down south to go to school. But I think that they need strong recruiters to go into the communities, to go into the schools like he did that can actually talk to the kids one-on-one. There was maybe a handful of us, maybe 12, maybe 13 kids in that particular meeting, you know, because they weren't interested. You know, nobody was making us listen to him. It was like, if you're interested, he's going to be here and he's going to be doing this in this room. And if you want to go and listen, then go. But I think they need more strong recruiters. I think that kids need to see what they can be. They need to see somebody who came from a background like they did and were able to rise above it, to go to school, to get degrees, to get their education, to have the jobs. Yes, this is possible. I'm just like you and you can do it too. I think so, I think that's where we need to start with sending strong recruiters into the inner city schools.
0: You know, that's, that's a wonderful, wonderful suggestion. And, and with that, because, you know, be the role models, you know, mm-hmm. we are seeing an uptick of renegades. We're seeing an uptick of menaces to society. I mean, they are being, it, it's like they're, they're, they're mashing out on, on the gas pedal, if, if you would. And they are just, coming out of nowhere in, in large in large numbers and you know i believe one reason this is happening is because the lack of resources that are in those those um you know black and brown communities i mean and research even shows that, that predominantly white schools have more resources than than black schools and what i mean by resources i'm talking about training aids teaching aids Uh, software applications uh, that these children have exposed uh, are being exposed to whereas children in um, these, these low demographics are not being exposed to and standardized testing is some would say standardized testing is that measurable thing that says okay You know, these children in this demographic Is not getting it So, you know, why invest In a high risk Whether than I don't know Let me bring in Buddy Thor Buddy Thor, what is your thoughts about what I just said?
2: I was told you know, That that those higher Those areas That have those school districts with all that stuff That have the better resources Is because the taxes are higher In those areas and they get more money for their school district that's the way that was explained to me was the reason for that i said but our district is bigger
1: (laughs) so yeah nina's actually correct nina's Mm -hmm. actually correct the uh, tax base and the taxation system that funds the schools is skewed to where the higher property value areas create more funding for schools and obviously the historical tax base is going to be higher in the upper more affluent neighborhoods and those are predominantly white neighborhoods and that is shifting but it is slowly shifting we know that is not going to happen in my lifetime but it's there's no funding mechanism that has been voted in anywhere in the continental united states that has changed that dynamic there's really no way to offset that other than to change the mindset that these are not throwaway children. They are. They cannot be throwaway children. And the mindset is, well, we have a standardized test and they don't get it. They don't get the scoring. But as long as the tax base is set up the way it's set up, even if they have the mindset, The funding is not going to change. So we have to say, can we change the funding? If we can't change the funding, let's take it off the table and let's not talk about the funding. Let's talk about the mindset. Get the mindset on the table first. That's more important than worrying about the funding because you're not going to change the funding because they're just not going to change the laws in all 50 states to change the way they fund the school.
0: Well, you know, my thing is awareness. That my thing is awareness because before I asked that question, I'd already looked, you know, up some research where it said that schools with ninety percent or more students of color spend seven hundred and thirty three dollars less per student than schools with ninety percent or more white students. And so now we're, now we're talking about schools we're, we're not even talking about property taxes that you know that money goes to a district a school district and it's up to the school district to to vote right with those those school board meetings they vote and they see you know what how much money is going to a particular school from their front site. so you know I, you know I, I get what you're saying about property taxes yes that's how they they pay, they, they they pay for schools uh, they remodel schools They build schools Out of that, that that That's fun Right But As it relates to The lack of resources You know Why are Black and brown students Being the late ones To receive it They Now They get The resources But why do they get uh, Why are they Why are they so late in, in receiving Those resources I mean That's another question Who wants to take that
1: Well, you know, here, I I can't speak for Texas, but I can speak for Arizona. The way the funding works in Arizona is they they do it on an as-needed basis, and they do it, uh, each school board, each each, uh, group, each school district gets to allocate their funds how they see fit. And if they are doing, um, you know, any type of infrastructure work, if they're doing remodeling, or if they're doing funding, if they need teachers there are certain things they prioritize and the very last thing they prioritize usually goes by uh, the school census. And especially in this last few years, COVID has skewed the census. Some of the laws that have been passed that have allowed some of the funding to go out of the school systems and into the charter schools and other, uh, let the money go away has also skewed it so What's happened is they've created uh, a back fund and they hold on to resources because they don't want to allocate all their funds, not knowing where those students are going to land. And so there's always an open question. Well, why, why is this money sitting and it's not going somewhere where it could go to the, do the best good? And the answer always is because we don't know where the students are going to land and we don't want to put money where it's not going to do any good at all. So there's always some kind of justification rolling around. But when you look at, by and large, where the money lands, it's almost never landing where the disproportionate number of students are minority students. It just, it hasn't, it won't. And hopefully someday that will change. You can do some specialty funding. You can do some request funding. Some things do get shifted around, but you know, that is the historical record. I, I, you know, I'm an elder white guy. I'm a, I'm a great grandfather, and I, my kids go to very diverse schools where the population they're white and they're in the extreme minority in the schools they go to, and yet they are very happy with their classmates. There's they have little resources, but the parents get together and we we try to make these kids learn as best we can. And right. you know, it's I think that what you said in the beginning, it's not always about the resources. It's about the family involvement. You, can, right. you have to accept the fact that resources are not there, Isaiah, but you cannot, you can, there's no excuse to say resources stop a family member from sitting across a table and engaging with a student and engaging with a child and making sure that child right. has hope that they are going to come out the other end a better person and with a, with a chance to have a great life. Because they got the education that their parents and their caregivers helped them attain. Because that has nothing to do with resources and funding. That has everything to do with desire, motivation, and a family being engaged with that student. And that, that that's what I do as a positive social change agent. I keep families engaged regardless of the barriers that are in front of them. Because that's what we have to do. Well, so, that's, that's I have no problem on the
0: podcast. But but you know you know what I think we should have changed I think I should have changed the topic to recycled racial gaps in education yeah because you know (laughs) you know for for I mean from what you're saying you know it's it's a cycle because unemployment leads to hey you don't have an insurance card right how you gonna have an insurance card you don't have a job which is gonna lead to a low level of health which is gonna lead to sickness which is gonna lead to a lack of interest in your students. and your kids because hey mom's in the pain she's in back pain you know she's you know she 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 hurt her back you know pushing the broom or 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 pushing a mop right and so these are those factors that are increasing especially now since COVID-19 like you said and, and, and this gap, this racial gap in education is not closing. It's, it's actually widening and, and it's going to continue to to, to whine because this is really not just re- racial gaps in education. It's recycled racial gaps in education. What, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? Who, who wants to take that?
1: Well, I, first I want to say I really I really love what Nina said uh, about the role models and the need for more role models and the extensive need for getting those role models out of the campuses and out onto the streets so that these kids across the board see that there is hope. The one thing that these kids don't see is they don't see above the community level. They don't see above their own streets. And because just like Nina said, if she hadn't have been exposed to someone who could say, Hey, you know what? We have an H, uh, HBCU right here. You don't need to go down south. You don't need to go a thousand miles to go to school. Stay here. Be part of the community. Be part of the solution. You know, she's, she's exactly right. We, we can all be part of the solution. These children are the resources of the future, but they need the role models to draw them out. You know, I don't have a problem right now. They they say there's a lot of kids revolting in the schools. They're angry because they're being bullied. And a lot of the minority students are feeling like they're being racially pushed around. I have no problem with their anger at all. And I, I, I have a feeling like Nina would say the same thing. But that anger needs to be pivoted to resolve. And the resolve needs to pivot even further to focusing on the self. And what can I do to be part of the solution? You know, we honor these kids and we honor each other by being curious about each other. I would love to know more about what Nina does, because maybe some of the things she does would help me engage better with some of these kids. Because curiosity draws people out. It gets them out. It gets them out of their comfort zone, but it also gets them to realize if you're that curious about them, then they, they know you see value in them now you've increased their dignity because you've given them a self of you've given a sense of value now that their dignity is starting to build up and they they can throw their chest out and it helps them build a self-identity and then you 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 tell them okay now you have a self-identity now be a role model don't blame shame judge take that anger realize that some of these people they don't know what they're doing just accept that they don't know what they're doing and now instead of wasting energy being angry, become part of the solution. Pivot them. Pivot them all the way to being part of the solution because society can't live with this anger. Right now, the anger is positive. But it's going to become negative if we don't pivot it. We need to pivot that anger. What what are your thoughts? You're you're exactly right. Go
2: ahead. Yeah. No, I... I, (sighs) and and most of us who work in education we see it every day and you remember the saying you get this crazy child and you go home and there's crazy people there Um, they're only bringing to us what they know that's it they are only bringing to us how they've been raised and somehow within the six I, I think I narrowed it down to approximately six hours and 25 minutes that we are with them and this is besides you know going to special classes and then being outside it's our job to kind of gear that thinking into more self-awareness you know take that thinking that nobody at home cares if they do their homework or is helping them so what can we do to self-motivate and this is a lot of times that what we have to do as educators is to self-motivate so that they feel good about. I actually had a six-year-old today tell me, oh, you remember how I was so bad when we first came and I didn't want to be at school? He said, well, you know, I like school now. Told me this exact thing today that he liked school. And he was. He was coming in. He was turning out, flipping chairs over, doing all kind of crazy stuff. And now that we said, okay, you did all that, but we're still going to go forward now he's getting into it i'm gonna do my homework i mean he's telling me this i didn't ask him anything he just came in telling me all this stuff today i'm gonna do my homework i'm not gonna be bad and i said it only took four months but here we are here we are and that's that's the way i think it has to be with all the kids to self-motivate them because if they're not getting it at home we're the only other option that they're gonna have
0: you know this is so good we're out of time, but, you know, wow. How would I sum this up? Because I want to do a quick takeaway. Um, but you talked about uh, setting goals. Nina, she just took that and, and just ran with it. Man, but, you know, you got to make plans when, when you're setting these goals. Right, and then, like you said, you gotta be motivated. You Gotta get to work. You gotta get the job done. But you are putting you're putting those those tick marks down on your vision wall. That's something we gotta teach uh, as educators, as mentors. We have to teach as role models. We have to teach our our kids about you know making a, a a wall, a vision wall, right, and sticking to it every day. You get up. These are some things I was told. Uh, You know, everything you get up, you look at that vision wall, you see the things you have to do, and you make small, obtainable goals. And then when you reach those goals, you know, anyway, we're out of time. What's the takeaway tonight? Who wants to go first?
2: I'll go first. Um, My takeaway is really to just. I think we're heading in a good direction as far as the way we're trying to educate. We know what the background is. And I work at a school in the inner city and 75% of our kids are special needs. Special needs meaning they may be in the foster care system. They may be uh, in the shelters. They may have parents with drug and alcohol problems. My takeaway is to continue to try to motivate and to instill confidence. I think that's the only way they're gonna, what they learn right now is gonna take them throughout their career in in, in education. I really do believe that.
1: I think Nina hit it pretty hard right there. And one thing she said in the previous statement was very, very telling a child came in and was disruptive, and four months later, turned the tide. Mm -hmm. These children are not a sprint. Too often in today's society, everyone wants instant gratification. Everyone wants to think that they can just flip a switch and things are gonna just change. These children are a marathon times 10. We have to dedicate a lifetime to these children. Not a day, not a week, not a month, not a year. A lifetime. I'm a great-grandfather. I have eight great-grandchildren. And in all the decades that I've spent raising children and grandchildren who are all adults now, the one thing I can look back on and say is, nothing has changed. Kids are still kids. They all need a special touch. They're all unique. You can't you can't just put them in a cardboard box and think they're all the same. So if you think that you can just wave a magic wand and things are going to change, it's just not going to happen. You have to take the Nina Taylor approach. That child is not a failure because they turn over a desk on day one. They're only a failure if they turn over a desk on day 181. You've got to just treat it like it is. Today's a failure. That means that's not tomorrow. Tomorrow they can be a huge success. That's that's the goal. Never paint today into tomorrow's box.
0: You have heard it first. This was another special night of Impact Education Leadership. This night, the Breakthrough Impossible Pearl, and the lovely Miss Nina Taylor, good night.